Hello, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of Building Sustainability, Sustainable Voting Series. This is Pili Aloha Estal. Please make sure to listen to my introduction to the series. It really highlights the goal of this sustainable voting journey, coming from the passion of globally understanding the value of voting and what it means for democracy, diplomacy, and what its future looks like. In addition, diving into the history of voting, including suffrage and suppression as well as the ways voting has really opened up our ability to see democracy shine. It's not a short endeavor, but rather an opportunity and a lens to learn from individuals, communities, and countries how they see voting and what it means to them and ways to improve so we make sure voting is sustainable. To launch this very special series, I have decided to go to one of my favorite countries, as a role model country in my eyes in voting and democracy and a place I look to and have wanted to live since college and starting my environmental studies journey, the beautiful New Zealand. It was the first country in the world to grant national voting rights to women. As organizations like Global Citizen emphasize, the right to vote is crucial to maintaining a fair democracy and allows citizens to voice support for policies that can help end extreme poverty and its causes. In August this year, Global Citizen stated more people around the world than ever before with nearly 2 billion voters in over 50 countries were able to head to the polls to elect their leaders. This right has expanded globally since 1946. The first voting was 500 BCE Athens, but again, you can listen to my intro and learn a little bit more. But Global Citizen also stated that Saudi Arabia is the most recent country that's as of this year, August 2020, is the most recent country to grant women's suffrage. And U.S. just celebrated 100 years. There are over 140 elections plus around the world annually. So this is going to be a very busy podcast series, but I believe one to inspire positive and sustainable voting. So let's kick off our first guest from New Zealand. And it is such a honor to welcome Ian Lees Galloway. Ian Lees Galloway was a member of the Parliament for Palmerston, North New Zealand from 2008 to 2020. Early in his career, Ian discovered a passion for advocating and campaigning for positive change in his community, which led him to work for the New Zealand Nurses Organization and to join the Labour Party. As a cabinet minister in Jacinda Ardern's government, Ian was the prime minister responsible for immigration, workplace relations, and safety, and deputy leader of the House. He is now returning to his union roots as a lead organizer with the New Zealand Nurses Organization. Ian has a Bachelor of Arts from Massey University and now studying towards an MBA. He is also in the process of co-founding a social enterprise called Here's Good through the 2020 Innovate program, which I will be asking him about a little bit later. So without further ado, please welcome the Honorable Ian Les Galloway. Welcome. Thank you. Look, it's a real privilege to join you uh, this morning, our time here in New Zealand. Um, Yeah, look, it's, it's lovely to be on with you. Thank you, Ian. And what I think would be helpful is if you can share with us and your listeners maybe just a little bit more detail besides your bio, some areas that may be helpful within kind of us talking about sustainable voting and your background. Sure. So, um, look, I, I suppose I got politically activated when I was at university. 
uh, and I became ended up becoming the president of my uh, student association at university. Uh, we were very heavily involved in campaigning for uh, change uh, from you know, p policy change from the government uh, in in favour of students. And one of the things that we achieved while I was um, in that role was um, interest-free student loans for, for students in New Zealand, which you know, I, I, I should imagine many wow. of your listeners would, would think is quite, quite a remarkable thing. Yes, that's thing. quite a remarkable um, option. <laughs> so I, I suppose you know, in, in doing that, I found you know, that power of, of communal action, of people working together towards a common goal. Uh, and really enjoyed uh, being part of that, and found that I had a few attributes that were that were helpful in in doing that sort of thing, uh, and that took me into the union movement um, with the nurses' organisation, uh, and and inspired me to join the Labour Party. I'd actually grown up in a family that was more aligned with our our centre right party in New Zealand, the National Party, um, and so that was quite a big deal for me to uh, to shift my allegiances over to the centre left of politics. Um, but I realised that that was you know that was where my values sat, and and um, I really felt as though at the time we had a Labour government and they were doing amazing things for for people, yeah, you know, right across the spectrum in New Zealand, and and that we were yeah you know, we were much better off with that group of people. So um, so yeah, I, I moved into the the union movement did a lot of again a lot of political campaigning from outside of parliament and it just happened that my constituency you know, we had a, we had a very senior cabinet minister as our local member of parliament um, he had been a member of parliament for 18 years uh, he decided that his time in parliament was coming to an end uh, and so I amongst a group of other people put my hand up to be the Labour Party candidate in, in Palmerston North we don't run primary elections in the way that you do in the United States. That's an internal matter for, for the party, but it's still an, elec an election within the party. Um, I was lucky enough to be elected and, and that took me to parliament. And with my background, you know, with the union movement, um, it, was an, it was obvious for me to have a focus around industrial relations um, and link, yeah, and then ultimately linked that to things like immigration uh, and accident compensation, which is um, quite a major portfolio for us here in New Zealand as well. Wow. Uh, and of course, with, with the nurses' background, I spent a bit of time on um, our health select committee. So when I first went into parliament, uh, my party was in opposition. We actually exited government uh, at the election that I came into parliament. Oh, wow. um, so I spent nine I spent nine years in opposition, but you still get to do a lot. Um, I was on various uh, parliamentary select committees, um, including health and the transport and industrial relations committee. Um, and I, picked, I actually had a, a variety of portfolios when I was in uh, in opposition. So the, um, defence is really important to my constituency. We have an air base and an army base um, very close by. Uh, a lot of um, my, my constituents when I was an MP were, um, were defence force personnel. Uh, so I held the defence portfolio for a while as well. So I had a really varied um, wow. uh, set of set of portfolios. It was, it was a really you know, wonderful place to learn about people and, and about policy. Um, and then ultimately, yeah, when we when we went back into government with Jacinda Ardern as our Prime Minister, um, I held the portfolios of workplace relations, immigration and accident compensation. And as you pointed out, the rather quirky role of, of Deputy Leader of the House, um, which most people don't understand. And I'm not even sure that I do either. Uh, but um, <laughs> yeah, look, I, I think yeah, I, I, I have been lucky enough to 
uh, visit uh, the United States Congress, uh, the um, Parliament in Westminster. Uh, I've been to Canberra, the Australian Parliament. Uh, I'm a, I've, I even I even went to Vladivostok of all places wow. as a, as a member of Parliament, um, and so I've been able to have a look at, at other systems. And Wonderful. whilst yeah, you know, all systems have their pros and cons. Uh, I have to admit, I'm a little bit of an evangelist for the New Zealand system because <laughs> I think a lot of a lot of the things that we do well are part of our culture, but but they're very much a result of the particular political system that we have that that does allow um, almost everybody to have a voice in Parliament wow. um, and and everybody to be represented. So I, I think I think we do a pretty good job of democracy in New Zealand, um, and I think amazing. that's and that's and I, and I really think that's shown up this year with the way that we've handled COVID-19. Uh, I mean, every New Zealander is very, very proud. And it doesn't matter if they support the government or not. Yep. I think we've seen in the last few days where an American political commentator and some in the Brit in, in the United Kingdom um, have started attacking New Zealand. Um, people from all sides of the New Zealand political spectrum spectrum have stood up and said no actually we're doing a really good job, good job. and we, we're not <laughs> going to tolerate these attacks from from people who don't know what you know don't know New Zealand and don't know what we're doing um so I think yeah we we do democracy pretty well here when we've talked and gone over some different ideas about sustainable voting I told you I was scared because I know the day I go to New Zealand, I probably won't come back. <laughs> so, Glad I'm not the immigration minister anymore because I might have had some thoughts about that. <laughs> you might have confirmed me now, but this journey of sustainable voting came from a seek of knowledge, a seek of learning, and we can only share what we know and what we experience. There's not a lot out there about the role of voting. And I found it very fascinating. And that's kind of what took me down that journey. And I'm so excited. I'm having you kick this off because I have a feeling we have lots of questions for you down the road so don't be mad at me now <laughs> um, so if there's some story or two you think would be helpful to kind of share some of the areas where you think a democracy you see is works really well and or if you want to talk about the Labor Party but in an opposition view as far as you still being able to do your role so that's kind of a double whammy question but I think you get where I'm going I'll, I'll do my best. Um, so I, I, I think it all starts in New Zealand from the fact that we have we have quite a high degree of trust in our government, in our government agencies, and that doesn't matter who's in government. You know, even even as a member of the opposition, I had obviously had a different opinion to the government of the day, um, but I didn't. You know, nobody felt as though. You know, uh, uh, there was some there was some sort of tyranny going on, or or, or a whole group of people were excluded from the political process, um, and and yeah, you know, there were no great conspiracy theories going around about about the government, and and likewise, you know, I mean, with 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 a little bit of exception, unfortunately, a little bit of what we're seeing around the world does rub off a bit in New Zealand. We're starting to see the odd conspiracy theory, but fundamentally. People trust the government, and, and I don't want to go too far down into this, but I think a lot of that does have to do with our political system. And in New Zealand, uh, it, is, it is the popular vote that determines yep. the government. Now, we have a parliamentary system, which means we elect our parliament, and then the parties that are able to form a majority in the parliament form the government, 
and the prime minister is the is usually the leader of the largest party in in the government um and so but we have whilst we have constituency uh representation and i and i represented a constituency actually what determines the number of seats that each party um holds in our parliament and yeah and ultimately determines who gets to form the mm-hmm. government um is is what we call the party vote and everybody in the country casts their party vote the same way you know, yeah it doesn't matter what constituency and so if you live in a solidly labor constituency but you want a party vote for national your vote will count it doesn't wow. it doesn't matter yeah you get you get a separate vote for who your local member of parliament will be but your party vote determines how many seats each party will get in parliament and so that means that unless you vote for a real fringe party that doesn't make it into parliament at all um then your your vote will count no matter where you live and so that gives the government a lot more legitimacy you don't have people feeling like there's no point in voting so at the the election that we've just had something very very unusual has happened which is that we've got one party the labor party my party uh will be able to form government all on its own because it actually got a genuine majority of the votes cast. Now that wow. doesn't usually happen in any constituency yeah, around the world. You, you don't usually see one party get more than 50% of the actual votes. Wow. Um, but so normally we have coalition government because that represents what people actually voted for. So I think that's important. So that's one of the really good things about democracy and about our democracy is that we've got one where people feel they can participate. They do participate in high numbers. Um, because yeah, they they feel as though their vote will actually count, and um, and that creates a, a higher degree of trust in our elected government and I think in our government agencies than you see in a yeah in a number of countries around the world. Now you you picked up an example that that uh, you saw me speak about in my final speech in Parliament, and this is actually one of those areas where I'd say democracy often doesn't work necessarily that well. So first of all, can I say we have wonderful healthcare in New Zealand. We have universal healthcare, what some people in the United States might call socialised healthcare. Um, so through the taxes that we pay, uh, we have a right to to a, a quite a high level of healthcare. And, and you know, we, uh, I would put our system up again just about any other system in the world. I have studied the healthcare system quite a bit. Just to kind of understand it, it changes each location and country. I understand it's not just one makeup, but your system of healthcare is very fascinating. So for you to come into that role and then see some of the broken areas is very fascinating too. Yeah. So I mean, basically the, the, the issue that we have in New Zealand is that we have a very, very, very good health system and a superb system for dealing with accidents. Um, and and there, so therefore you get a two-tier system. Um, so we have something called the Accident Compensation Corporation. I was the, the Minister of Accident Compensation. And uh, so we pay levies, we, we pay a, um, a, a very small uh, tax uh, on our income. And then we pay things like, yeah, we pay registration for our vehicles uh, or if um, we undertake um, dangerous activities, we'll often pay a levy on that. And that all goes into a fund which um, pays to not only give us treatment 
when uh, we get injured and a very, very high quality of treatment. Um, but we also get compensation for lost wages. So if you, if you can't work because you got injured and it, you don't have to be injured at work, it can be an injury playing sport, it can be an injury driving oh, a vehicle, wow. yeah, in, an injury around the home. Um, you, if you can't work because of that injury, uh, you actually you get 80% of your normal income paid by the accident compensation. Now, the, the, different, the, the point that I made in my speech was you can have a very similar outcome from getting a disease like meningitis. So I spoke about a woman who lost three limbs because of wow. meningitis. Because it was meningitis, because it was an illness, she went into the health system. That means she gets good care, but not amazing care. And it means that she has to go to our social welfare system for income support. And that does not give you anything like 80% of your, of your normal pay. Um, so she's a lot worse off for going through our health system than she would be if she'd lost those same three limbs in an oh, accident. Wow. Okay. And the reason I say that this is one of the perhaps the downsides of democracy is yeah, there are people out there, and you know, and I'm actually talking to some of them now about what role I might play now that I'm outside of of, of mm -hmm. politics. I feel blessed. So when you were referred to me, and I was learning kind of your role, I know you get to talk about more because that's the hard thing to interview politicians. It's really hard. Yeah. You can rarely get them on a podcast. I feel really blessed right now. <laughs> Look, I'm singing like a bird now. All the things that I couldn't say when I was on the inside. So what you know, there's a group of people who think you know we we should make the health system work more like our accident compensation system. But of course that will cost, that will cost money. Um, and that's where, you know, often people when they're voting, especially when they're thinking about paying money now for something that they might need to use in the future, uh, that can be quite hard to convince people to do. And mm -hmm. so, um, you know, democracy is wonderful. And as I say, I think we've got a very good version of it here in New Zealand. Um, but, just as with any system, it's not a perfect system. Um, now, I wouldn't advocate for any other system. Uh, I think I think democracy uh, is the best thing that we've got, um, but it is not without its flaws. And, and one of its flaws is that it can be very, very difficult to get people to vote for things which are in their best interest in the long term, because quite rightly, people worry about the here and now. They worry about paying the bills, putting a roof over their head, putting food on the table, putting clothes on their kids. And when someone comes along and says, vote for me and I will make you pay more for something yeah. that you might get to use in the future, um, you know, people look rather sceptically at that. And so political yeah. parties have been reticent to, to pick up that um, particular issue. But, yeah, there are some of us who are, who are going to try to make the case to the public. And I was, I was speaking to someone who's put together a, a really fantastic report. He used to give me a lot of grief when I was the minister. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and he's put together a really wonderful report. And he, and he said to me, look, you know, how do we win this argument? And I said, well, first of all, don't even bother talking to the politicians. Talk to the people. You've got to win the people over. And, um, and, yeah, and, that, and that's the nature of democracy, right? You, you, you vote, you, you, you hopefully get what the people want. So first of all, you have to convince the people that that is actually what they want. The good thing is in New Zealand, we generally have good, constructive, robust debate. Yes, we have left and right. Yes, we have people um, who will vehemently argue against something because of their political ideology. But I think the electorate, the constituency, um, you know, people out there who are tuned into politics, 
genuinely want to see a good, robust debate, and they want to hear the arguments for and against from both sides. What are your thoughts on the Electoral College? Because how I understand it, just the history of it and why it started, do you have a reason why you feel going away from that has been beneficial? We we never had uh, the Electoral College process, but what, what we had was basic, well, essentially the system that they've got in the United Kingdom, which which we call first past the post, in which yep. it, you have to win electorates. Um, so it's like it's, it's like your um, yes. uh, constituencies, you know, the, the, the areas that your Congress people represent. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, in order to get elected to Congress or, or elected to Parliament in the United Kingdom, um, you have to win your local constituency. Um, and that means that if you live in a constituency that's heavily Democratic or heavily Republican, you just, or in the case of the Electoral College, you live in a state which is heavily one way or the other, you don't feel like there's much point in voting. And, of course, the politicians are incentivized to focus on the swing states or the swing electorates. Correct. Um, And so we had had that back back in the day, uh, up until 1996 in New Zealand. Uh, And what you saw was sometimes um, governments could be formed without winning the popular vote, uh, much like, you know, President Trump won without winning the popular vote because, yeah, he he won using the system that you have. Uh, and we had a couple of occasions in New Zealand where, par- where parties clearly did not win the popular vote, but they won electorates. They won uh, those electorates where, you know, they managed to hold a majority by a small amount, and then the other parties would be winning by huge amounts mm-hmm. in in um, individual constituencies, but not winning enough of those constituencies to, to win the, um, a majority in the House overall. So we had we had that problem, and and so I guess that's that I from an outside perspective, and you know I I always say change has to come from within because outsiders don't understand the full culture of behind why things are the way they are within a political system. Mm-hmm. But from an outsider's point of view, that the issue I see with the Electoral College is um, the, you know, the the popular vote can be frustrated. And, and that did happen last time. It is, it is a simple fact that more people voted for Hillary Clinton to be president than, than voted for President Trump to be president. Um, but because of the system, New Zealand has been a role model for me forever in your sustainability measures as a whole. I believe you take sustainability seriously and you incorporate sustainability measures within your entire scope of your of what I call like your supply chain, your value supply chain. I feel like countries are just starting to jump on board for something that you've already been incorporating forever. And I'm like, how did you guys get so far ahead and so many other people are so far behind? We're in a place where, okay, how do we keep sustainable voting? There's countries, hopefully, that I'm going to interview that it's going to be a little hard to hear because we know that some countries don't allow women to vote and women's suffrage and things like that are will be hard to hear. But again, you have to take everything, take it back to the root and where it comes from. We can't judge another location based upon what their growth and needs are and where it comes from. We're not here to judge anybody. We're just here to say, okay, look, these are the processes that we have seen worked and this is why. And these are the things that we see that have been positive and that have allowed people to feel more part of the process. Again, voting is literally considered the number one tool for democracy. So if we're saying people are suppressed, 
like me back in Gore Bush because I'm like, this is crazy, <laughs> you know, because I knew the role of sustainability as a whole and I knew the work that we needed to do. I get discouraged because certain things like masks become political, climate change becomes political. It's hard sometimes for me to see that. And I understand certain religion. I get all that. It's not that I don't understand it. I've taken business classes. I did global leadership for my master's. When you're learning how a business functions and then you're learning, okay, well, they didn't take into social justice. They didn't take in environmental. They didn't take in. People would claim, oh, well, that doesn't matter because if you don't have the economy, then and then it's like, yeah, but that's short sighted view. Yeah. If you're not taking a long-term view, like you said, you're convincing the immediate needs of putting roofs over heads and all that. And I get that. But for some reason, somehow New Zealand just had a sustainable mindset from very early on. And I'm still trying to figure out how that happened. I don't think, I think maybe because it's so beautiful. I don't know. I'm still trying to find that magic wand. Well, so my, my first comment would be, you know, don't imagine for a second that we don't have these debates in New Zealand. I mean, there is yeah. a spectrum of views on, on all issues, and including issues of sustainability and climate change and what have you. And um, it often, often though, um, it comes down to more, more about how fast the pace of change should be rather than whether or not change is necessary. Yeah. Um, but you, I think you made, an, you made a, a good observation, which is, we, you know, we are so beautiful. Um, and I think what it, does, what, what it does come back to is, uh, before the pandemic, tourism was our largest industry. Wow. And our second largest industry is agriculture. Um, and our agriculture, you know, there's a huge debate in New Zealand because, because agriculture is basically the source of, I, I might be overstating things to say most, but, but is, the, is the largest source of our carbon emissions. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, we're, we are, we're very lucky that we're actually able to generate our electricity through renewable um, you know, wind and hydro that are our main sources of electricity in New Zealand. But agriculture and transport are our main um, causes of, of climate emissions. But agriculture is also, it's called the backbone of the country uh, in New Zealand. And um, and so, you know, uh, you can understand why, why farmers who have been doing things a certain way for 50, 70 years um, say, you know, we're, we're, it, will, it will just be too hard for us to change. But, yes. but you know, we, we have accepted. And even the parties that you know, represent the rural communities and represent farmers appreciate that for New Zealand for New Zealand's brand as a tourist destination, as a clean, green, beautiful place that people want to come and live and work and study and visit, um, that there is actually an economic imperative for us to take this stuff seriously. And it hurts us, and we seem to feel it quite personally whenever there's a report that comes out that questions uh, whether we're really as clean as we as we purport to be. Um, so we know that you know, we, we have to do it better than a lot of other places. We are a long way from uh, the rest of the world, and so things like travel miles uh, kind of start to factor into people's decisions about their tourism destinations. And and so it, there is a real economic imperative for New Zealand. I think that's helped to shift the debate as well. But it is part of our culture. We love this country. It is a beautiful country. Um, and people have moved here over the generations because it's more egalitarian, because there are opportunities for everybody, um, because um, it, it is just a, a, a lovely, safe, 
uh, beautiful place to live. And we want to protect that. And we know that if we are going to protect that, um, we have to be, you know, at, a, at a political level, we have to make good decisions about our environment. And it's not just about climate change, it's about waste. It's particularly about water, um, fresh, our fresh water mm. use, um, how we maintain our rivers and streams uh, in New Zealand as well. So, um, yeah, I think for a whole host of reasons, just, you know, um, and one thing that really fascinates me is how the kind of Anglo-Saxon countries there, the countries that were colonised by Great Britain, and I think particularly of, well, well UK itself, and, and in Canada, Australia, United States and New Zealand, um, how we all started from very similar beginnings, but over time we've kind of we've made different decisions early on in our colonial right. history, and those those small decisions have taken us on paths which have actually taken us to quite different places, and I find that quite fascinating. Oh, um, yes. And I think it just you know early <laughs> on New Zealand. New Zealand decided that it was going to pursue a very egalitarian path. Um, uh, it was a place where early on people did agree that it was a good thing to kind of pool our resources and and um, and make sure no one was in extreme poverty um, and that we would take care of each other and take care of our environment. Uh, and and whilst we have debates, we have a spectrum of opinion around those things, and and things do change. Um, according to who's in government at any particular time, I think our our spectrum of views, our spectrum of politics in New Zealand, is what you would call in the United States sort of um, you know to the left of of your spectrum. Um, I, I I would make I, I think this might be a bit of a generalisation, but I think our entire political system, and we have five political parties in Parliament at the moment. I think our entire spectrum would fit within the Democratic Party of the United wow. States. Okay. Before we take off, because I think it's important, and I was really excited because I didn't know about it until I talked to you and Tony, is about a project that you're working on. Yeah. I've had guests on my podcast with the Ocean Foundation talking about investment funds and, and places for people to put their money to good sources, but I was really fascinated about your Here's Good. It's basically do good with your dollar and I'm rooting for you I guess my question for you if you let me know is can I vote <laughs> for it so if you could share just a little bit about that I know we're going to do some follow-up to this podcast series and again I'm so grateful for you to come on and share a little bit of insight into your system and being able to take that lens outside of politics because like you said sometimes you're in politics you can't always voice those opinions just maybe share a little bit about here's good and your journey and what that's going to look like for you and Tony. Here's good as as a platform that's that connects conscious consumers to businesses that are doing their best to be more sustainable and more socially responsible. And we know, you know, there's lots of different versions of this out there. Uh, we're very interested in B Corp, for instance, um, and the B Corp network. Um, but what we're what we're really keen to do is is make it something that people do every single day. You know, choosing when they go and choose where they get their coffee from, that they're choosing a, an employer who's looking after their workers or, or looking to reduce their waste or looking to reduce their carbon emissions. Um, you know, go to a restaurant, go to get your, when you go to get your hair cut, you know, all, all those little things that you do every mm -hmm. single day, rather than focusing it on the, on the sort of the big purchases and the big corporations that I, that I know that's where a lot of the focus has been up until now. Um, and so really this is, this is really still just an idea, but we, um, 
we were lucky enough that when we were talking about and thinking about it, it happened to be uh, when a local business accelerator was um, looking for bids for a competition it calls Innovate. Um, so we're calling it Innovate 2020. Uh, and we, we had to go and pitch. It's kind of like um, Shark Tank or Dragon's yep. Den. We had to go and do our two-minute pitch. Um, and they selected us to go into the final seven alongside awesome. some really amazing ideas. So we've got a little bit of imposter syndrome um, oh, wow. being in there. But but um, so we have to do another really big pitch on November 26th. And so what we're doing at the moment is we're just trying to run a little trial in our own city of Palmerston North and in, in the middle of the North Island in New Zealand, mm-hmm. um, just encouraging people to um, go to the businesses that have agreed to be part of our network uh, and to do posts on social media about it so that we can track um, people's behaviour. And we want to demonstrate to the businesses that there is value in um, really transparently being more sustainable, more socially responsible, that there's actually a, a, a market of consumers out there who are looking for that. Um, but that, but what, what our role is, is to try and make that transaction easy. It, it can be quite hard to find those businesses. It can be quite hard for the businesses to demonstrate what they're doing well. Um, so we're just trying to make it really easy. And so that when people are looking for a good place to get their coffee or a good place to get their haircut or, or whatever, they can go, oh, here's good. Um, so hence the name. Um, I love so, it. Yeah, I love so, it. So, so we're in this competition Look, we, we, uh, it really doesn't matter whether we win the competition or not. The benefit of making it to the final seven is that we're getting a crash course in how to start a business um, and, and we're getting linked up with uh, people who are already investing in the space that each of us is trying to work in. Um, we, you know, we've got mentors uh, and, and so they're all about really trying to get all seven of us up on our feet and able to run a business. So we're going to run a trial. We're hoping to kind of get our trials started uh, next week. Um, and as I say, just locally in our own city, that'll hopefully generate some data that we can demonstrate that this is a viable uh, prospect. Um, but ultimately, of course, what we're trying to achieve is that more businesses will see the value in doing what it takes to be more sustainable, to be more socially responsible, that they will see um, a value proposition from that um, and that we might be able to move more businesses along that spectrum towards uh, you know, being um, businesses that are, that are deeply engaged with their community and, and doing, uh, you know, using business practices um, that help New Zealand uh, get closer towards achieving the sustainable development goals. So we're really using the UN sustainable development goals um, as a framework for determining what environmentally sustainable and socially responsible looks like. Okay. Uh, and yeah, we would we would love it if more businesses were making more of a contribution towards that and making money, you know, uh, and being able to be viable, sustainable businesses themselves. And we we believe, and I, I know a lot of your listeners will agree with that, this, that there is um, a huge and growing group of consumers out there who do want to be more discerning with about where they spend right. their money. Um, and, you know, and I made the comment to a journalist the other day, you know, we've just voted in New Zealand. We get to vote every three years, um, but you get to you get to vote with your dollar every single day. Um, and so that. there are there are other ways outside of government that you yep. can have positive impact. 
Well, it's like the carbon tracking and you get to track your carbon and things like that, giving people the opportunities to have those choices. So I'm so excited. I'll follow up with our blogs, magazines, learn more. I'm rooting for you over here because I love it because I think it's a role model example that can spread throughout and be used anywhere, which is amazing. So keep me posted as well. And a lot of what you bring up to is the social justice. And in my first series was indicators. Uh, I did youth indicators, which I believe are youth are key indicators of how we're doing as a society. And I also then got into what I call art of respect. And then from that stemmed into a culture of repair. And that was inspired by a lot of indigenous cultures in Australia, and then also Native Americans in the US. So my only other question that I feel that maybe is worth tapping a little bit into, and then we can close off, but just to kind of understand a little bit about the Native indigenous groups in New Zealand, and how that role plays into the government systems or the voting, how does that play in? And is that something that is talked about a lot? Do they feel they have a voice? What does that look like? Yeah, look, look. It's, it, I have to say, over my lifetime, it, it, it really has been a, a journey, and we're getting better. We we are not perfect. Um, Maori in New Zealand, they show up in all the wrong statistics here you know, around um, incarceration, unemployment, mental health, physical health. Yeah, um, and and that is a product of colonisation. But I think increasingly we accept that in New Zealand now we are making really really good progress to dealing with that. There was for for decades, generations, there was absolute suppression in New Zealand. We were as bad as anybody else. Um, so yeah, we we got to we've got to be upfront about that. Um, but we have two two things that I'll point to. One is New Z- colonial New Zealand was founded on a document called we, uh, the, the Treaty of Waitangi or Te Tiriti or Waitangi uh, in, in Te Reo Māori. And, um, and we, uh, for, for 100 years, that was basically ignored um, and, and some real atrocities occurred. But in the 1970s, a, a, a process of reconciliation began. Mm-hmm. And we now have a, 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 a what we call the Waitangi Tribunal, where iwi, uh, tribes, um, groupings of, of Indigenous people, the Māori people, can go to the Waitangi Tribunal and say, um, our rights under the treaty were breached in this way. And it's usually around land acquisition, mm-hmm. uh, you know, people being forcibly removed or, or, um, or being, you know, literally paid in beads and blankets for, for you know, extraordinary tracts of land that were fertile and, and worth a huge amount. Um, and so we're getting, we're, we're, we're getting a lot of settlements where iwi organisations are actually receiving money and they are using that money, they're investing that money and from, and from those, the proceeds of that, they're creating um, services for their own community. They're creating health services, community services, all sorts of things that are of value to their community, which yeah, are designed to lift their own people up and gives them some autonomy as well. And that's the real debate in New Zealand about how much autonomy Māori yep. um, iwi um, people should have. The other thing that we do have in our political system uh, is we actually have designated Maori seats. So if you're if you're Maori, um, wow. and, and we don't have we don't have you know we just trust people in New Zealand. So um, <laughs> yeah, we if you're if you're down Maori, to trust and, you, and yeah, autonomy. You just, you just, you just tick a box on on your when you enrol to vote um, that says I'm Maori and I choose to go on the Maori roll. So Maori can choose to go on the general roll or the Maori roll. Um, and so we have seven Maori seats. So so we we you know just as we divide the whole country up into sixty something um, general seats, um, we have seven. Maori seats and people on the Maori roll can vote to be represented by somebody locally 
um, wow. you know, who, who is Māori. And, and, uh, so, and we determine the number of seats based on how many people choose to go on that Māori roll. And about, about half of all Māori choose to go on the Māori roll. Okay. Um, and um, so, you know, so you get specific Māori representation in Parliament through those seats. But what I'd also say, because we have a proportional system and because we have to appeal to all parts of, of New Zealand society, we actually have a very diverse Parliament and, and very diverse after the election we've just had. We've just elected our first African um, a person of African descent. Uh, we've we've got um, we've got we've people in Parliament who are of Korean descent, um, Chinese, uh, Muslim. Um, uh, goodness, uh, we've got an, uh, an Iranian refugee uh, as was wow. elected at the last election. Yeah, we've we've got a real variety. It comes and goes depending on on mm-hmm. the electoral fortunes of different parties, but all parties and, and even our conservative parties um, recognise that they need to um, that they need to represent all different parts of the New Zealand society, and we are a migrant nation. Um, you know, we were we were first settled by Maori about 850 years ago, so we're kind of the last place on earth mm-hmm. uh, where there was human habitation. Um, and then, you know, uh, about 200 years ago, Europeans started arriving, and then people started arriving from all around the world. So we are diverse, we are multicultural, mm-hmm. um, and so we know we have to appeal to all parts of society. In particular, yeah, we know all the parties know that representation of Māori is important. And so even in the absence of the Māori seats, um, a number of Māori get elected either in general seats or they get a position um, by virtue of the list. So so uh, without going into a lot of detail, some of our members of parliament do not represent electorates. They're there because of where they were placed on their party's list and how much party vote that the party attracts. And that can be a way of making sure that you're membership in, in Parliament is more diverse than it would be otherwise if you're all just relying on people winning electorates because electorates tend to, you know, they drive to the centre and they elect people like me, middle-class, middle-aged white guys, <laughs> right? So, um, so so, the list has been a really good way of getting people of high calibre um, who are of more diverse backgrounds into Parliament. We're going to talk later. I have so many notes and questions, a lot of research for me. Thank you, Pili. It's been a real pleasure joining you uh, today. Um, I love telling these stories. I, you know, <laughs> uh, as I said, I am a bit of an evangelist for this stuff. Um, okay. But uh, I hope I hope your listeners have enjoyed um, the conversation today. And, and I hope it generates some questions for them. And uh, look, I would, I'd love to come back and talk to you again, because I, I think democracy is important. I think, you know, it's not just New Zealand who does it well. Um, you know, we, we all have our own systems. We all have reasons for having our own systems. Um, but the but in this day and age, the more we can have a constructive conversation with each other and just talk about different ways of doing things, uh, I think the better we are, better off we all are. So thanks so much for the op- opportunity. I've really enjoyed it. Is there a way for our listeners to learn more about certain processes within New Zealand voting? Is there resources or ways for them to learn more? 
if you're interested in New Zealand politics, I mean, really, I think um, just 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 Google uh, politics in New Zealand. I, I, I've um, the Wikipedia pages about New Zealand politics are, are pretty thorough and a good and a good place to start from. Um, our electoral commission uh, would be a good place to go and have a look at as well. Um, and look, I, I, I can't resist the opportunity to plug. So if you are interested in Here's Good, um, we're on uh, Facebook, we're on Instagram, we're on LinkedIn. Um, we'll be on Twitter shortly. Um, although Twitter, my goodness, what a, what oh a minefield goodness. that can be sometimes. That's a but whole anyway, we'll be on Twitter shortly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, but we're on, we're, um, if you look up Here's Good NZ uh, for New Zealand, Here's Good NZ on uh, Facebook, you'll, you'll find our page um, and you'll see that we are very embryonic, um, but uh, you can follow our little journey through November. And if we're successful no, through November, you can follow our journey into the future. Oh, wonderful. Well, thank you again. Thank you. Bye-bye.